and welcome to episode 109 of Craft Cook Read Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, February 16th, 2023. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Going well. It's a Thursday in February, and I'm super excited about that. (laughs) Why? I have a lot of fun stuff happening. Okay, that's good. Yeah. That's acceptable. How about you? What's going on? Uh, Quite a bit. Yeah, lots of things to chat about, especially on the table. I had all these recipes, I I think. Actually, you know what? I will say it right now so I don't forget while I'm thinking about it. Thank you to everyone that approved of my bean post and sent me messages about their their enjoyment of all the vegetarian recipes that I talk about. So that was really nice. So I think now that I am leaning into <laughs> that lifestyle, I am I am finding more joy in my in my cooking again. So so that's kind of fun. I'm glad. I had so many recipes last week that I was just throwing into my notes because I was like, oh well I'll probably want to talk about this. And then it was every single recipe. So I will have to narrow it down a little bit, I think, but it's a better problem to have. So then that we'll have on the needles, on the easel, and then on the table, and then on the nightstand. So just a a regular, delightful kind of episode. Because next time is Stitches West. I can't believe it. We're headed back to the knitting, the yarn mothership in Sacramento. Very exciting. Yes. And that's the one where we'll podcast between our hotel beds under a blanket fort. It is the return and, of the blanket fort. <laughs> and it's exciting for me, even though knitting is not my primary sport. It's really fun to go on a field trip adventure with Monica and eat out at fun restaurants. Yes. We have some great ones lined up. Maybe visit an art museum and I, I might actually buy some yarn. Cool. Did you sign up for any classes? No classes this year because I'm still recovering from my <laughs> post-traumatic brioche. stress of brioche, but I'll yeah. I'll update you on that yeah. front. I have two classes. One is a short color one and the other one, the other one is embroidery, like a beginning embroidery. I know, no actual knitting in my classes. A lot of the ones that I was interested in were full day, like six hours or some were even, you know, two days worth. And I just was not what I wanted to spend my time doing. Even though they sounded exciting, I went with these short, quick, new skills. I'm excited to hear about the embroidery class. Yeah, I think it'll be fun because I bought... No, you bought the embroidery kit, but I was thinking about it. I think I get an embroidery kit. Oh, fun. So, yeah. Well, I guess to take the class, we would need to do some embroidery. Embroidery might be my first actual craft sport. I think that might have been the first needle craft my grandmother taught me. Okay. I did cross stitch when I was little, but I had, haven't done a lot of embroidery. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, cross stitch might have been my first too. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, it will be very exciting. All good. Very exciting. Okay. But this time will also be good. We will start with on the needles. I have a couple more finished objects and I apologize. The first one is a hat. <laughs> So even though it was all hats last time, it is again a hat. My kid has a February break, so we are going down to Joshua Tree, Palm Springs. I'm very excited. I was listening to another podcast, The Yarniacs, and one of them discovered a hat pattern collection of the national parks by Nancy Bates, 
one of which is the Joshua Tree pattern. So I said, oh, obviously I need to make this for my trip. I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's super cute. And and it was one of the, the more adorable ones because it's all cables and whatnot. I want to see it straight away. And it looks like a Joshua Tree. Exactly. So it's got cables and quite a lot of baubles, which I didn't fully think through when I was picking out the pattern to make the little, you know, bushy parts of the tree. But it looks really cute. I made it in Yoth Yarn's Big Sister, which is a DK weight in the kale colorway. So a nice dark green. So it's not exactly deserty green, but it makes me happy. Um, and I got it in, at Stitches West in 2015. So this might be my dash deep dive for the quarter which was one of my one of my ideas for the year so very excited about that so it looks really cute knit up super fast it was a lot of purling or reverse stockinette to make the joshua trees pop but you know dk weight it's a hat still super fast and also super fun nancy bates so she does kits for the whole thing but you can get little tags to put on your hat with the name of the park So I had to do that as well. And it just makes me ridiculously happy. I haven't posted a picture on Instagram yet. I am waiting till we get, you know, in situ with the background as appropriate. There are pictures on my Ravelry of just the hat looking cute, but not as cute as it will be when I do the fully modeled shot. I can't wait to peek at the Yosemite one. My guys are big Yosemite they have, I, I don't know if she has all of them. She might have all of the parks, but definitely most of them. And then there was the Yosemite one. A lot of them are more pictures. So the Yosemite was like, had gray have, and then had a part, like a to. wide part. Yeah. And this one is more sculptural. That was my first project. And then I also quickly did a pair of maize fingerless mitts by Tin Can Knits for Simon because he has been playing a lot of piano gigs and there's open windows and his hands are cold. He has fingerless mitts, but they're brown and blue, I think. And so he wanted some in black that were just a little more subtle. So I got some nitpicks Bravo Worsted, which is just becoming quite a little workhorse yarn for me in black, just solid black, and knit those up. And this is a free pattern, I believe, from the Tin Can Knit Simple Collection. They have a whole bunch. They have a like a first sweater, first cardigan, hat, mitts, socks, all the things. And so these are really simple. And again, in reverse stockinette, so I'm doing a lot of purling lately. And then there's a little ribbing pattern on the side, and they're revert not reversible, but you make them both the same, and it fits on either hand and looks the same. So they're very cute and nice and comfy and machine washable. I think eight or ten years ago, you made me a pair of fingerless gloves mitts very likely with the owls oh you got one of the owl ones and i wore them i forgot to tell you i wore them when i went mushroom foraging oh wow and then i was worried they were gonna get dirty so and it was warmer than i thought but they were they were you can wash them (laughs) yeah that's true i guess i would be more worried about getting snagged on branches or something yeah not not that you're picking mushrooms from trees but there could be like a twig on the ground right 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 yeah no they worked great yeah excellent Glad to hear it. That's nice. Then I have a couple other things that I started. I started a pair of socks for Simon. That was my travel knitting project for when we went back to Charleston to visit Boy One. I only took one project with me, which is very unusual, right? I mean, granted, it was 
a Thursday to Sunday trip. And I don't think I did any knitting except on the airplane. And no, actually, I didn't even do much knitting on the airplane because I was reading. I had a really good book, which you will hear about. So this was yarn that I got on our field trip. So the online super sock for fuck merino extra fine color. <laughs> and I'm sure I butchered that. So it's just, it's fingering. It's one of those yarns where they don't have colorway names. It's just a number. So I don't even know what the number is offhand, but it's all grays and dark blue and a you know, charcoal and kind of a gradient stripey thing. So very manly. And it was really excited because I was working on it on the airplane, sitting next to Simon, and he looked over and asked me what it is. Oh, it's a sock. Oh, and who's it for? And I said, oh, it's for you. He said, oh, good, because I was hoping. So he will like it. I'm probably almost done with the leg on the first one. And I'm doing, I do, I do his socks toe up, or I guess at least I do the first one toe up. We'll see what I do this time. That seems to work better for, for me working his socks so that I can make the leg as long as possible or as long as I want to um, and not have to worry about running out of yarn. And these are the OMG heel socks by Megan Williams, which is what I always do for him. And so those are, those are kind of coming along. I'm sure I'll take them on our trip. Very basic, but lovely sock. And then I have started a new sweater. <gasps> Yay. I have not gotten very far. It is the Paul Klee sweater by Midori Haroes. I've been eyeing this one for a while. I think it came out late last year. And it's kind of a, a big-ish boxy sweater, not super oversized, but a little bit. The key part is it's a yoke sweater, and she's designed it with six to eight rows of colored squares. And each row has two different colors. It's kind of like a checkerboard ombre. Yes, but you can do it however you want. She says you can do it using just four colors, six colors, up to 18 colors. It's so uh, beautiful. So it's really pretty. So I've been thinking about it for a while. And what I'm going to attempt to do, we will see how this works. So you have the collar and the sleeves and the body are all a solid color. Although mine is a speckle from Lemonade Shop in their simple sock base in the colorway Ugh People, which just makes me laugh. So it's a kind of lightish gray with neon speckles. Eh, not exactly neon. Very, very bright though. I mean like pinks and blues and yellows. So super fun, but not too, too much. So overall, mostly gray. And then I got a mini skein bundle from Knit Circus Yarns that they called the Hummingbird Bundle. And it has like two pinks, two blues, two greens, and a purple. And I think it works pretty well with the speckled yarn from Lemonade Shop. I haven't entirely figured out how I'm going to do this. I also realized once I looked at the pattern, I'm going to need to find one more color from my, my leftovers, I guess, probably, because you don't need that much yarn for the squares, because I do need, I think, eight colors total to make it work. So I'm, I am either going to have my main color as one of my colors on every row and then just do the my mini skein colors, or I will mix and match amongst my mini skeins. So we will see. We will see. And then uh, it's entirely possible that I will look at it and just be unhappy and <laughs> go back to the drawing board and decide to do something else entirely. But I do want to do this sweater at some point. So I'm excited. Yeah. So I think I hopefully I will take it on my trip. We're going to have a long drive. So it feels like it would be good car knitting. Although the problem is if I decide I hate the way the colors are turning out, then I'm stuck with a sweater that I'm not working on and I'll have to have a backup project for sure. Maybe I'll make enough progress on it before we go. I still have a couple of days that I will be able to decide whether or not I like it. Or you could bring, 
you could bring a couple options with you. And I'm pretty sure that there's yarn stores in Palm Springs. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I guess I could start another sweater that I know I will be happy with. Yeah. Many possibilities. Um, That is all my knitting. But I understand that you have some knitting this time. People, I'm really excited to report that I have figured out brioche. Like, my brain finally understands brioche. So I've been working on the Shawlography, which is the 2021 Stephen West knit-along. I have been foiled by the brioche section for a while. One of my goals or ideas was to try to finish this before Stitches West. I don't know that I'm going to finish the whole thing because it's still a bear of a run for the rest of it. But and you're at the part where it's all super long. Yeah, so even though it looks like you only have a little bit left, it will it, take a while. It's, it takes me all night to do like one row because yep. I'm not a fast knitter. I'm through one repeat of the brioche section. I have finally, I've finally remembered and see the pattern, which is what you said would help. Yep. I definitely have mistakes in there. I prefer to see them as character flaws in the best way possible. And I am definitely leaving them in because I don't know how to back myself out and correct a big mistake. I can do little ones. A correction class might not be the worst thing in the world for me at some point, but I'm also embracing imperfection and moving forward. Excellent. Yeah. And especially, nobody should be looking at it that closely. That's fair. Fair enough. But I also don't care. I mean, I care and wish it wasn't there, but I'm also really proud that I sat down, figured it out. Like, I've done this section, this little part, three times now. So I feel like... And then today when I showed up at Monica's to record, Monica gave me this little (laughs) brioche cheat sheet tag that I can put on my knitting bag, which is great. Although I hope to just power through the brioche section. Then when I was looking at my Ravelry to get excited about stitches, I realized, oh, I have that brioche. There's this like squishy brioche cowl in there that I've been Mm -hmm. wanting to make. It's like pink and white, super cute. And now I feel like, okay, I could invest in some cashmere and do that delicious, fun cowl in brioche and have it be right yeah so we'll see i don't know what i'm going to knit next i got to get through this thing first i have a couple other sewing projects though i had a pair of pant failures oh no failure singular i made this pair of pants that i thought were going to be a slam dunk and i should have done a muslin a practice piece especially on the yoke because it's it's an elasticated waist And then the pants have a yoke top, which is like the back of a pair of jeans. But on these pull-on pants, it's in the front too. And that's where the pockets are. And then the pants are, you know, run the length. They're a little bit too short of a rise in the back. But as I was sitting here thinking how I was going to describe them to you, I realized I might have just enough fabric to replace the back yoke and make it a little taller and salvage the pants, which would be awesome because I'm in love with the fabric. So maybe it's not a fail. Maybe I'm just saying... You're pausing. Yeah, they might need a little revision. 
And then in the interest of forging ahead, I made myself this really cute t-shirt. It's always good to have a t-shirt pattern that you know is going to land. It's really cute. And I had this, what do you call this kind of a jersey? It has like, um, it's like flecked linen kind of. It's not super stretchy and it's very thin. I thought it was going to be a muslin, you know, a practice garment, but it's completely wearable. So that's a win. And it was a good practice on this pattern that I will likely make again. It has like a, a good length to the sleeve. It's an inset sleeve, which I really like. So I'm happy with that. And it's a I'm, nice neckline too. Yeah, I'm happy with the neckline. And I'm cutting out a pair of pants for an event for next weekend. And I, I'm i cutting it a little close, but I'm using a pattern that I have, have had success with. So hopefully when we're in Sacramento, I can wear them to oh. stitches. Yeah, I'd like to be able to start taking these fancy pants for a walk, yeah. frankly, besides... I mean, you could wear them over here. I could. Because I do want to see them. Yes. So that's been my my needlework. The easel is going equally well. Good. I did a little work on my art calendar for the year. And I think I mentioned last time that I, I'm really eager to do the, to front load my year so that if I create a calendar from art, that that art is underway in the first part of the year as opposed to the second always busier part. And in order to do that, I realized that I need to be painting like two paintings a week in order to yield enough art for a potential calendar and for open studios in the fall. And by front-loading the calendar, that opens up the fall to actually host open studios. So this is a huge shift in my practice. I think it's doable, and I'm changing one of my goals and plans. I think I'm going to change the floral piece, the floral painting, to the two pieces a week, just to keep myself on target. Monica mentioned early on that having her goals at the bottom of the show notes, even as a working document between the two of us, that it sort of helped keep those goals visible for her. And I like that it's holding me a little bit more accountable because as an artist who works at home, I don't have coworkers. Monica is my coworker and my husband checks in on occasion. And I have a couple other friends who I rely on to help keep me chugging along. So the two paintings that I'm working on this week, one is a portrait of Julia Child. Excellent. Julia, man, she's such a charmer. I've, I looked through a lot of still images from her, her TV show with her wild background. It's like painted teal with all these copper pots. I did find a portrait of her that I'm using as, as a reference. And then I did give her three of her favorite things. There's um, a yellow rose that's named after her. There's a stick of butter. And then her favorite meal was a roasted chicken. And a roasted chicken is kind of an ugly thing to tuck into a portrait. So I found a really delicious chicken bird (laughs) and I put that in it. Is her rose buttercolored? It is buttercolored. Nice. Yeah. That's adorable. And I think it's very fragrant too. Not like butter, but... (laughs) I wonder if they have it at Fololi. Oh, I wonder. 
We have a huge rose garden. Yeah, that would be a good field trip for later on this spring. Yep. Our rose garden, too, is often really, really great. So that's the Julia Child portrait. The other thing that I wanted to share about this this portrait is that I drew a rough sketch and decided on which elements I wanted. And then I drew it again on final paper, you know, the good stuff, if you will. It was sort of off-center. And my first thought was, oh, well, I'll just paint it because when I crop it for Instagram, it'll be fine. Nobody will know. But then my second thought was, wait a second, you're doing an open studio. And while nobody maybe cares about owning a portrait of Julia Child, take the time to draw it right. It was just a good check valve with myself to get the orientation the way that I really wanted it instead of sort of more performative for Instagram. So I thought that was worth sharing with people. And then today's painting that I'm super excited to go home and paint, it's just pencil right now, are my grandmother's favorites, my grandmother's favorite things. So I have a crafty grandma that she was just incredible. If I sat down, I could paint a hundred of her favorite things, but I have chosen that in part one, there's just seven elements. And since it's not painted yet, I will just say, please go look at it. Please go look at it. I think I'll put it on my Instagram when it's done. I think it's even the draw, the drawn version is like, it just makes me smile. It's so fun. So it's not a portrait. It's just her favorite things. Okay. But it is not currently on Instagram. Nope. It's as we are talking. As we are talking, it is a pencil drawing. So it's pretty complete, well composed, I think. And then when I get home after this, I am so excited to paint it. And I might film some of the process. Because I was going to look at it. Oh, nope. It's not Because you're telling me to go look at it. I can't look at it. Well, it'll be ready for our listeners. All right. You have to be patient. (sighs) All right, fine. And that's what's on the easel. Awesome. On the table. Okay, the first one I want to talk about is cauliflower salad with dates and pistachios from Shocking I Know Smitten Kitchen because it was delicious. I'm pretty sure she featured this recently in one of her emails, which is how I came across it. And I think I had cauliflower sitting in the fridge for my produce and it sounded great. And I'm also very proud of myself because I didn't have dates or pistachios, but I had raisins and 15 other kinds of nuts. And I was like, all right, I am not buying dates just to make this. I have other dried fruits. It'll be fine. And it was, and it was delicious. And you made some sort of vinaigrette dressing, but it was amazing, really good and very, you know, wintry, but bright and just easy and delicious. And then I also made her rigatoni olive vodka, which was interesting because my usual vodka sauce I get from the How to Cook Everything, which is a basic tomato sauce and you throw in a little bit of vodka and a little bit of cream at the end. And hers is a whole lot of vodka right at the beginning and a whole bunch of tomato paste. And then you use the pasta water to make it saucy. And it was delicious. Oh my gosh. It was tangy and bright. I love vodka sauce. Her recipes are always great. And it was just so completely different from the one I had been making, which is also from a really, really solid cookbook that I get so many great recipes. So I wanted to see how this would all work out. And yeah, it was good. She cooks the vodka off 
almost entirely because she has little kids, although they're probably not that little anymore. <laughs> yeah, but still. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, yeah, so I wasn't going to leave it. I think I left it a little bit. It does cook for a while. Anyway, it was delicious. Yeah, husband commented on it. I got rigatoni and then gluten-free penny. And so that was the only thing that I wasn't able to test out is she also has you, as really most pasta recipes you throw the pasta into the sauce and cook it all around. I just can't do that. I mean, I would have to double it and then put it on. It's just way too much trouble for Monday night. That was not the point of pasta night to make things more complicated for myself. So I just had the sauce and threw some on there. So it's it could probably be even more amazing, but it was still really delicious. And then I did a baked artichoke risotto. Oh, you know what? We're going to do our two wimpy vegetarian recipes. Baked artichoke risotto and balsamic roasted Brussels sprouts and onions. <laughs> so the risotto was for Valentine's Day, which apparently risotto is my go-to fancy meal because I did it for New Year's Eve as well. I mean, I a different risotto. risotto. It's great, especially a baked one, which it doesn't end up quite as creamy as a stovetop one, but it's worth it because you're not standing there for half an hour stirring. So it was fine. Artichokes are fantastic. I totally forgot to buy radicchio, which is fine because... My kid finds it too bitter, but had plenty of artichokes. And the key part was you do a breadcrumb and caper topping. So good. Yum. It also has a ton of gruyere and Parmesan on, so that did not hurt Double at all. yum. Yeah, so it was good. It was really good. And then the balsamic roasted Brussels sprouts. You start started off on the stove, Brussels sprouts and onions, and saute them around. You throw in not that much balsamic, mix them around to coat it, and then... You just cook it on stovetop for like 10 minutes or so. So I guess they're not technically roasted, pan roasted, I suppose we could call it. And then if you want to, you can throw a couple eggs in there, them all fried up, and they were really good. I mean, I love balsamic. I love Brussels. So obviously I thought it would be a tasty combination, but it was you know, surprisingly more delicious than I expected. Not that many ingredients. So that's always exciting. And then just quickly, I made <laughs> I made a vegan bouillabaisse, which was super funky. Um, a, ra <laughs> a rabbit and wolves. No, it was good. Rabbit and wolves, that vegan website that I've talked about before. And you use artichoke hearts and tofu and mushrooms and hearts of palm that you've cut up. And you soak them in a veggie broth and nori that you crumple up. So it gives it that seafood flavor and then you roast them and then you make like a tomato broth and you throw a little more nori in there as well and some other vegetables and whatnot it was pretty good it was interesting i will say i will say uh, also i threw some shrimp in there for boy two and i <laughs> just to make it feel a little more seafood saucy but it definitely had that feel of a bouillabaisse i think maybe i didn't have enough tomatoes i was kind of throwing things in and just seeing what would happen so it probably could have used a little more like lemon or something to brighten it up. Mm -hmm. Parsley. Something. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't working on it too hard at the time because it was a lot of steps, but I think it would definitely, if you were a full vegan, I think it would be a good substitute for a whole seafood stew. And it was funny because my, I thought my husband would be kind of excited about it since he lived in France and all. And he was like, it's a what? <laughs> so I, you know, it's like, it's like Chipino. Oh, okay. So um, might not stay in our rotation, but I think it was definitely worth trying out. 
Excellent. Yeah. How about you? Okay. My temple lunch for this week. The Temple Chronicles. The Temple Chronicles was the Spanish frittata from Cook 90. Oh, you're getting a lot of use out of that. I am. It's a, you were right. It's a great lunch idea springboard. I liked the Spanish frittata because it had potatoes in it. And so it was satisfying. I also think it could use an olive or two, but that's Mm. just me. And then what I thought was the end of wrestling season, it alas was not. I made a coffee cake cookie from from this site that I keep coming across for baking called Kroll's Corner. It's kind of like a snickerdoodle pretty thick dough and then you put a divot in it and fill it with this streusel topping that sounds delicious they are very delicious and then you put a glaze on top and i have to say they're a little bit of a sugar bomb i think next time i would cut back on the sugars so that it's a little more cinnamony and you know i think they were just a little oversweet they were eaten devoured before i could are they big or they like jam thumbprint kind of size. They should be jam thumbprint sized. I made them Courtney sized and they were too big. Eh, Apparently (laughs) not. But then I just cut them in half and it was like a coffee cake. I did more of our usual stuff this week. I did the turkey meatloaf for skeptics with the ranchy potatoes on the side, which was awesome, from the Smitten Kitchen Keepers cookbook. I did more of the Parmesan roasted carrots from Cafe Delights. Mm. And those are just so garlicky and Parmesan-y and really addictive for a carrot recipe. I even like them. Yeah. The new one that I did this week that was really fun and delicious was a spicy Tuscan chicken pasta from Half-Baked Harvest. I think she just posted it maybe last week. And this one reaches into the Wayback Machine for sun-dried tomatoes, which feels like really 80s. But man, they are relevant. They're delicious. They add so much flavor. It called for the entire jar. And I didn't use the entire jar, and I kind of wished that I had used a little bit more. Super easy recipe to get all of your spices going in a little bit of sauce. Saute off the chicken, and then you're meant to cook the pasta in the pot. I don't love to do that because I don't think it reheats as well. I, I just think it gets... It can get overcooked that way. So I cooked the pasta separate, added in a little pasta water... And then added the pasta in. I also think it goes a little bit faster that way. And on a Tuesday night, it's nice to have something that's expedient. This was a delicious recipe. So good. We'll definitely repeat it again. I think it would be awesome with cascatelli. Mm. Um, I mean, what wouldn't? Yeah, because it would really hold on to all of that sauce. The vodka sauce. So that was my cooking win this week. And... I'm excited to go home and have a little leftover turkey meatloaf sandwich as my temple lunch today as my belly is growling. (laughs) Whenever we're talking about food, sometimes my belly growls. I mean, it is lunchtime. It is. So the sun-dried tomatoes, though, are kind of a resurgent ingredient. And you can cook the chicken. You can start it off in the oil from the jar. Not all of it, obviously. And then... There's loads of Italian seasoning going into it. All of the great herbs that make it 
very Tuscan, but it was delicious. And that will be, that'll be a repeater for sure. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll have to keep that in mind in case we can have a meat and gluten meal, which does happen occasionally. Yeah, I'm here for the omnivores. (laughs) Right on the nightstand. So I have to say, I am kind of cheating with some of my reviews, mostly because they fit really nicely into some of the themes that I have created for my my book collection this time. And then one of them I'm going to be done in a hot second, and I will forget about it if I have to wait till our next moment. But starting off with some nonfiction, A Place at the Nayarit by Natalia Molina. It's a fairly academic work about a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant in L.A. in the 50s and 60s, and how it created a sense of place and community for various groups. The author is an academic, and the restaurant happened to be her grandmother's, and it fit into her her research that she does. So it was really quite interesting. It's it's a little, it was a little bit dry, a little bit slow, but fascinating. Um, her grandmother emigrated from Mexico in the 20s as a single woman, which was fairly unheard of, and worked in some restaurants, got married, adopted uh, her best friend's children when the friend died, and then eventually started this restaurant that became this huge thing in her neighborhood. And so it was really important for the Mexican community and the gay community and the local community and politicians and movie stars would come there. And it was just this whole thing. But because it was in a racialized minority neighborhood, there's not a lot of official documents about it. So kind of how do you save or remember these places that are so important to so many people, but aren't maybe in the official record? And then also food, (laughs) just talking about the kind of recipes that she made because she kept it very authentic. So it was really important for that as well. Los Angeles history. As a Californian, you get get the gold rush and you get the missions and that's about it. So this really specific moment in LA history was kind of interesting as well. So A Place at the Nairit by Natalia Molina. Are there recipes included? No. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if they have any of them. Wow. That would have been fun, though. But it was fascinating, I mean, because she, there was so much back and forth, I guess. She would put ads in the local newspaper in Mexico because she knew that people would be visiting or moving to L.A. And so then they would come to her restaurant and find their people and find jobs. And, you know, so it was really cool. And then (laughs) two books that feature art. I was thinking of Courtney. Well, the first one is Now is Not the Time to Panic by Kevin Wilson, which I have been listening to. And I'm only a little bit uh, more than halfway through. So this is this is one of my cheating ones, but it's delightful and I'm sure it's going to be fine. And Courtney's already talked about it. So this is the one about the two kids and it's summer and they're 16 and it's the 90s and they're really bored. So they create this art, shall we say, and they make copies and they poster the town with them. Something happens and everyone decides... Something awful is is going on, satanic cult or something. People freak out. And so she is an adult now looking back on that and someone's trying to track her down. And I don't know how it's going to end, but I'm sure it'll be good. But the beginning of it is really the intensity of being 16 and just creating and, and finding a friend. And it's just been really beautiful. And it's this weird sort of funny, but not... and. His writing is really interesting. It is so interesting. Yeah. He's really good. I'd say this is not, so far at least, and I think I'm at 56%, as wacky and funny as the Exploding Children one. 
nothing to see here, but I'm definitely enjoying this one as well. It's a little bit of a different vibe and yet not. So anyway, really good. And then the color line, a Ijabaskego, um, translated by John Cullen and Gregory Conti. She is Italian. Her parents are from Somalia. So this was written in Italian. And it is two storylines. The first is Lavenu Brown, who is a Black and Native American woman in the mid-1800s in America. And she ends up becoming an artist living in Italy. And so it's her story. And she is based on two actual Americans, Sarah Parker Redmond and Edmonia Lewis, one of whom was an abolitionist and human rights speaker, and the other was a sculptor. And I think they both ended up in Italy. And then the other storyline is an Italian woman of Somali origin who becomes uh, an art curator. And so she's organizing an exhibition of uh, Lavenu Brown's work, and she has her own stuff going on. So it goes back and forth between the two storylines and the connections between their lives. And it's this very, at least as an American reading it, very interesting sort of meta-ness going on because it's an Italian woman writing about an American coming to Italy for the first time and discovering Italy. And yet I'm reading it in English, but the translation was sometimes felt more English than American, if that mm. makes sense. And so, so it was really interesting. And she said, the author said in her afterward that she wasn't trying to make it an American story. It was really the bridge and the immigrant experience and the, the feeling of belonging. So there was a lot of stuff going on in this book. Very fascinating. And she pulls in a lot of other known people, but makes them not. So like there's someone who is based on Frederick Douglass, but she says, but it's not really him. I changed some of his character traits. And her main character is based on these two women, which was just really interesting and made me want to do a huge deep dive into them. The language is, while probably authentic to the time, really hard to listen to. Um, so that is something to be aware of. There are also, uh, there's not sexual assault, but there is trauma from it and almost descriptions of it. So that's also pretty hard. But it was a really just super interesting, fascinating work. And I think her other she has other books as well. And this, she said it's part of a trilogy. I don't. I think it's more of a thematic trilogy and not an actual character trilogy. But because of the artist part, she talks a lot about art and making it and what it means and finding connections and, and what you might see as one person versus another. And so that was really cool as well. And then I read five mystery books. <laughs> so welcome to Monica's Mystery Corner. I don't even know how that happened. Two of them are retellings of and then there were none by Agatha Christie. I know. So it's it's been a very interesting two weeks. All right, Decagon House Murders by Yukito Ayasuji, translated by Hong Ling Wong. This is the first one. So it was written in Japanese in like 1987 and just translated recently. And apparently it started a, a whole interest in like classic British mysteries in Japan. I don't know, that's what they put on the the book blurb. So it's seven college kids and they decide to go spend their spring break on an uninhabited island. And it is uninhabited because the architect who lived there with his wife and servants, they were all murdered six months ago and the house set on fire. But there's a little annex house that is still there that's decagon shaped. So they're going to go stay there for a week because they're part of a murder mystery club at their school. And then things get creepy and then people start to die. It was a really fun book. 
I mean, you know what I mean, as far as <laughs> death and destruction go. But yeah, trying to figure it out was really fun. I thought it was very clever. Really good. Very fun. And apparently, he, another of his books is being translated and coming out this month. So I'm gonna have to check that out. And then Nine Lives by Peter Duncan. Nine people get a letter that is just a list of names, one of which is theirs. One of the people is an FBI agent. And then somebody dies. And somebody else dies. What's going on? Again, clever. Well done, I thought. Some twists and turns that I did not see coming. Yeah, so that was another fun one. And then So Fair a Lady by Frances Duncan, which I listened to. This is, I think, the final one that I get to read in the Mortimer Tremaine series. I'm kind of sad. He was nice, classic mysteries. Mortimer is on vacation on, it must be one of the Channel Islands in between England and France. He's hanging out with his friends and getting to know people, and then someone's dead. So he has to figure out who did it. This one, I actually was very proud of myself. I figured out who, although not why, <laughs> but I still thought it was quite good and clever. Um, so I like that one. All right. Exiles by Jane Harper. Love her. This is her fifth book. It is the third one with the same detective, Aaron Falk. Did you read The Dry or... Yes. Yeah, so this is the same author. Okay. But that one didn't have her detective. So her detective is back. And he works for what I think is like the Australian FBI. But he works in the financial division, so he basically looks at spreadsheets all day. So he's not like a, you know, gunslinging superhero kind of FBI agent. But he is visiting a friend. He's there to be a godfather at his son's christening. And the christening was supposed to happen a year previously, but... His friend's sister-in-law, ex-sister-in-law, disappeared the night the county fair opened. It's like a wine and food festival because it's in the Australian wine country. And so obviously everything got put off while they were finding her. They still haven't found her. So they're back for the christening. It's a year later. They're going to do an appeal, see if it stirs up anything, and they can find some answers finally. So of course, while Aaron is there, he starts looking into things. Uh, this was one of her better books, I think. She has kind of gone back and forth. She has really amazing ones and the ones that are like, eh, okay, fine. This one I thought was more in the mm -hmm. really good. That's good. I like her. Yeah. And again, great sense of place. Feels very Australian. But, you know, she gets all the different, she gets different parts of Australia. So you get different scenery and her characters, I think, feel like real people, which is always nice. And there's good character development. Uh, so this one was definitely a thumbs up. And then A Dangerous Business by Jane Smiley. Ooh. Her latest, which I'm kind of surprised how quickly I, I got it out of the library. It takes place in Monterey, California, down the coast. Just after the gold rush, our heroine was brought to Monterey by her husband, who kind of immediately got himself shot. And so now she is a sex worker, and she's pretty happy with it. It's a pretty good life. But girls are disappearing, and no one seems to care. So apparently nothing changes ever. So she and her friend are looking into it. So it's kind of a mystery, but it's Jane Smiley, so it's not super mystery-like. There's a lot of other stuff going on. She's trying to, you know, figure out her life and what she wants, and you get a lot of historic Monterey stuff. So it was, it was enjoyable. She's always a really just solid, solid writer. Those are all the mysteries. So I'm in the middle of, I mean, I have like it's a super short book, and I have maybe 30 pages left. Lost in the Moment and Found by Shauna McGuire, which is her latest in the Wayward Children series, which is the one where kids go through doors. 
into magic lands. And so this is one of the ones where you get somebody's backstory. And this one, she is, she has been pretty open about the fact that this is very personal to her. She was abused by her stepfather. And so this is, and she makes it clear at the beginning. She's like, it's okay. She runs, nothing actually happens, but there's talk of grooming at the beginning, but then she gets out before anything happens and she runs away through her door into what is like a curiosity shop which is a fascinating choice for a world for a kid every kid the idea is that kids go through doors into worlds where that they need or want that's specific to them and you can kind of to a certain extent choose to stay or leave and you might never get back so it's very interesting so i i have a little bit left to see how it's all going to wrap up and what's going to happen but it's just a beautiful book series and i think it's only like 150 pages, so you can read it very quickly. And they're all really good. And I guess also if you have young people that are feeling alone or feeling different, not that young people don't always feel different, but lots of good options for for books for them to read in this series. And then finally, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. (sighs) Courtney was so right. James Smiley and Barbara Kingsolver in one week. Yeah, hitting the big names. This is why I didn't do much knitting on the plane on the way back from Charleston, because I just read this the whole time, whole time. So good. So this is the retelling of David Copperfield, but in Virginia, rural Virginia. You don't even need to know that, though. No. Opiate crisis, kid. Oh, my gosh. His life just keeps breaking your heart. It was was just amazing. Go read it. Yeah. Talk about a great character, huh? Yep. You just really rooting good. for this kid from page one. Yeah, Demon Copperhead just astounding. Yeah. An astounding book. Yeah. I mean it and it, it was huge and I just you just you just want to keep going. That's a good one to take on a cross country flight. It worked very well. And I did have it on my Kindle, so that oh. made it a little easier to to cart around, but delightful. All right. Sorry, that was a lot. No apologies. That's what we're here for. Yep. Okay, I have a couple art books for you and a couple fiction. I listened to Art Matters by Neil Gaiman. This is in strong defense of libraries, literacy, and reading. So it's kind of a nonfiction essay-ish type book. And I think it's really got me thinking. I read this, I, I picked this up because every time that I see that some school district is banning books, it raises my hackles. And I am trying to be thoughtful about the whole thing. So why? What's the fear? Otherwise, I'm very one sided in this whole thing. And I don't think books should be banned, but whatever. So listening to this piece, and how access to books is so important, sort of reiterated and underlined my thoughts about the role of libraries and teachers and parents and how we have a responsibility to, if our, if our kid is reading something that we're uncomfortable with, it's an opportunity to have a conversation with them about it. But it also raises up, for example, I read like Flowers in the Attic when I was a little too young to read Flowers in the Attic. I mean, everybody read it when they were too young, I think. Right. And so like, would I want my kid to read that? Maybe not, but I also didn't fully understand what was going on in Flowers in the Attic. And so I think there's like a context bridge to 
I want books to be accessible to everyone and for people to be able to read what interests them. Sometimes, you know, Magic Treehouse is not what a parent wants to be reading, but it is comforting to a kid. And so we read those books to our kids and get through it, right? But then if they're reading something that is more difficult, they're not reading it with our lens, they're reading it with theirs. And to remember that when we're helping kids select their books, being mindful to what a teacher is assigning and that it's all an opportunity for conversation. Whether you agree with that conversation or not, it's an opportunity to talk to your kid. Anyway, I could say a lot more about this. I will not. Another one that I read was Dickens and Prince by Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby. Oh, I heard about this. Nick Hornby is a novelist not somebody that I generally gravitate toward, but he wrote this book comparing Charles Dickens and Prince, arguably the world's greatest guitarist. You can have your opinions about that too. But I promise you, most of the world thinks that Prince is a pretty great guitarist. Anyway, I think what is really sweet about this book is how he's finding parallels between Charles Dickens and Prince and either it misaligning or just like comical parallels. I mean, could you find two more dissimilar people in a lot of ways? Going through their biographical stuff, there's a million differences and a lot of similarities. For me, what was really interesting was learning about their creative outputs. Charles Dickens had a huge family to support. He was a machine. He cranked out content like like the original bloggers did. Like he was just pouring himself onto the page. None of this George R.R. Martin nonsense. Right, right. He had serials going. He was constantly trying to drum up business. He was probably paid by the inch for some of these columns. So like, yeah, he was turning it out. Prince, in the contrast to the how the music industry works, he was churning out albums nine a year, 10 a year, when in that same period of time, Michael Jackson would release one or two. So the volume of work that both of these artists were putting out into the world was pretty astounding. Nick Hornby points out that for them, they were not being critical of their work during the process. They were being artists and either letting it fly and not worrying about the critic, because believe me, the critics will come forward and present themselves at every opportunity, but that our job as artists is to just create, make the thing, go. And boy, I loved that. (laughs) Okay, so that's a super fun read for anybody who like it might have caught your eye. It's 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 very fast, very satisfying, and just a lot of fun, even if you are maybe not art inclined. Then I read The House of Fortune by Jesse Burton, and some of you might have read The Miniaturist. This is The Miniaturist Part 2, oh. 18 years later. Really satisfying. I adored the first book, The Miniaturist, which is about a woman who marries into a family, and as a wedding gift, she receives this Dutch house of, like, it's like to scale of her house with all the little furniture and she 
super weird and fabulous. So this version takes place in 1705 Amsterdam, and our main character is Dutch and African. And the 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 crux of this book is like how to catapult her into a more secure future with a a fortuitous marriage and without spilling any family secrets and going to the theater and growing pineapples in the process. (laughs) Super fun. Find this one. It's a great read. And then the new Celeste Ng, the Our Missing Hearts. Wow. This book is sadly really timely, I feel. It leans into kind of speculative fiction, like what would happen if we really let go of our principles and morals, which I don't know, it kind of feels like we're on the verge of that at times. So in this particular world, which is not a far cry from our own, China has exerted itself strongly. And as a result, the U.S. heavily discriminates against any Asian person to the point where they're taking children away to re-educate them in American patriotism. It's not a far leap for my brain. It is hard to read, but also a gigantic wake-up call. I just feel like the people who are going to read this know that this could happen, and people who don't want to have the conversation would just ban instead of having the conversation about it. That's maybe a leap. However, I think it's a really important and beautiful book. I feel like if I were of Asian descent, it would hit way too close to home. And I sure hope that it remains speculative fiction. and Or just fiction. <laughs> I really loved it, but it's going to be difficult on your heart. Our Missing Hearts by Celesting. All right. Wow. We had some heavy books this time. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> All right. But we had some, some cheery ones. And next time, we'll be coming to you. Live from our hotel room, pillow <laughs> fort, um, blanket fort. So fun. Can't wait. If anybody's going to be there and wants to meet up, send us a little note and, and we can, uh, we'll be there the whole time. So let us know. And until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf at C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.